This is North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder, pastor of North Shore Vineyard. Today on the podcast, we have part 22 of our series on the Gospel of John. This message is entitled, The Passover-Shaped Ministry of Jesus. We had a lot of great things going on with uh, North Shore Vineyard. We actually just picked up a new building, which we're going to be moving our adult services to on Sunday mornings, and we'll be converting our existing facility into just a children's ministry facility, so a lot more room for the kids, a lot more room for the adults. Planning on having our beginning service uh, first Sunday in August. If you want to keep up with the progress on everything, check check us out on the web or on our Facebook page or at the website, northshorevineyard.org. Well, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and head to the talk. Thank you for listening. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. In in all of my years of being in the church, I've been blessed to be able to travel around and to experience church in many, many different denominations across the country and even around the world. And one time I visited this little black Baptist church. On a Sunday morning, I was reminded of of, of the the message I heard that morning because it, it was really very similar to where our church is. They were a, a small church that was growing and and things were expanding, and so I thought I would just share a little with you before we get into the message today, kind of what I heard that morning. The the Reverend got up, and uh, as as was the custom in that church, they would pass the offering right before he started his message, and they they sent the offering around the room and. And it shot right back to him, and he looked in there, and there wasn't anything in it. He said, well, I can see, I can see I'm already in the hole by coming up here to preach this morning. We're going we're gonna to try this thing again. And so we passed it around again, and, and, and the offering plate came back to him and uh, didn't have anything in, in it. And so he said, well, how many of you people believe that it's time for our church to, to, to progress here? And they all said, amen, Reverend, amen, amen. He said, well, in order for a church to progress, you, the church got to learn to crawl. It's got to crawl, people. And they said, let it crawl, Pastor. Let it crawl. And he said, once a church learns to crawl, it's, it's, it's got to learn how to stand up. And it's got to walk. It's got to walk, people. And they said, make it walk, Reverend. Make it walk. And then he said, well, once that church starts to walk in it's got to learn how to run. It's got to run. And they all said, let it run, Reverend. Let it run. Amen. Help me now. But he said, in order for this church to run, it's going to take a little bit of money. And everybody said, let it crawl, Reverend. Let it crawl. <laughs> Which brings me to my next point. <clears throat> How many of y'all believe that in the progress of this church, let it crawl, Preston. <laughs> uh, we, we are going to be doing a special offering at the end of the month just to cover the, uh, the cost of this, uh, these, these additions. I'm, I'm figuring we're probably in the neighborhood of about $30,000 because we're doing a whole lot of stuff. to. And when you're working on an old building in Covington, it, it takes a little bit more work when in a 150-year-old building than, uh, than uh, some newer construction. But... We're going to give you the opportunity at the end of this month that we're going to do a special offering. And all these years I've been here, haven't once asked for money, so this will be my, my, my money card, okay? 
This is about all, all, all you're going to hear. But I just, I just want you to pray about what, what can you do to help this out. It would be great if we could just kind of knock this out and uh, move on. Um, so be praying about that. We'll be doing that at the end of the month. Let it run, Pastor, right? Everybody, everybody said, let it run. Let it run. Good God. All right. <laughs> we having fun up in here this morning. All right. Um, you know, for the last, I don't know, five or six weeks, the guys have been meeting here on Saturday mornings for Wild at Heart. And, and yesterday, the topic was uh, an adventure to live. And John Eldridge, who, who writes Wild at Heart, he, he's observed that, that within every man there is, is, is a desire, a need for adventure. Actually, I think it's probably in, in women as well. I think we're wired as human beings with this, this longing for adventure. But he said, unfortunately, as, as Henry David Thoreau said, the, the masses of men walk around in a sense of quiet desperation. The sense of adventure is just shoved down. And, and you, you can't keep it down for good. So it, it, many times it manifests itself in just kind of vicarious adventures. Just watching you know, sports and, and getting excited about that because... That's the only thing exciting in life. Or maybe it even, it, it even manifests itself in, in, in sinful behaviors or an affair or whatever like that. But there's this, this sense of adventure that, that, that guys were called into. It's the way we're wired. Now, the, the thing is about this adventure, you, it, it's, it's not about me. It's not about us as individuals. It's about stepping into the story that God is writing if you ever make the adventure about yourself, it's, it's a, a kind of a miserable existence. You know, the, the, the forces of the world around us want to make us play it safe, don't they? Everything in our world is trying to get us to, to react out of fear or our need for security. But the, the only problem is that that ends up so many times just destroying, you know, and squashing this, this, this hunger to live in something bigger. A lot of men, a lot of women just play it safe their whole life. But God is inviting us into something bigger. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins, writing to young Frodo, says this, It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. You know, God has, has asked us to step out the door to risk. You know, the Christian life should be risky. It should be risky. If it, there's not some risk involved in your Christian life, then you're probably not throwing yourself into it all the way. Life should be risky. Not, not risky in the sense of not wise, but in a sense of we're willing to step out and follow Jesus into the story He's inviting us into. And when we step into that, we find what life truly is like. And in a sense, we're turning our back on the things of this world and the things that seem to look like life. But in another sense, we're stepping into what life truly is. So I want us to hold this kind of idea about stepping into the, the story of Jesus. I want us to hold it in our minds this morning as we look at the passage. We're in part 22 of, of our, our uh, study on the Gospel of John. And today, instead of just reading the, the whole chunk of Scripture, we're just going to go through it kind of verse, a couple of verses at a time. In John 7, verse 1, it says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He didn't want to go about it about in Judea because the G Judeans were after his blood. 
Now I want to show a map here real quick so we can uh, know what's going on. Okay, you see this area up there? I know it's probably hard to read, but that's Galilee. And that, that little, right there, that's uh, the Sea of Galilee. And that's, a, I thought that was a fly, but that's a, a mouse. Okay. <laughs> it's a fly. It's a mouse. It's Tevia. Um, and then this area right here, which I can actually point to, this is Jerusalem. This is Judea. The, Judea was the area where, where most of the people who lived around Jerusalem, they were different from the folks of Galilee. You know, the folks in Galilee had a bit of an accent. They were a little bit more rural. They were, you know, a little bit more blue-collar country. Uh, and, and, and the folks here in Jerusalem, this was, you know, this was the center of religion, power. Uh, it was the, the cosmopolitan area. Now, now, the distance from here to the, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's probably about, as a crow, crow flies, about... Um, 60 miles or so. So it's not a, a huge distance. And in fact, it, it probably is not that much different from driving from downtown Covington to downtown New Orleans, just to give you a, a, a feel for the, ge- the geography. Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee. If you look in the Gospels, most of his stuff is in Galilee. But his few encounters with Jerusalem haven't gone over so well. Uh, we, we've seen in the Gospel of John, in, in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and, and he goes to the temple and he starts uh, running people out of the, the court of the Gentiles, turning over tables. That didn't go over real well, as you would suspect. And then in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a guy at the pool of Bethesda, which is in Jerusalem, in, inside the city limits. And he, he heals this guy. He breaks the rules because he heals him on the Sabbath. And so that really offends the religious crowd. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Well, there's all these other days you can heal people. Why you got to mess up the Sabbath? And if that wasn't enough, Jesus' answer to them was, was really provocative. He, he, he basically compares himself to God. He basically makes himself equal to God. And so from that point on, the Jews are ready to kill him. The, the ones that live in, in and, and I want to make a distinction between uh, Jews in general at that time. It's, it's mainly the folks that live in Jerusalem in the, in the center of the religious um, uh, power. They wanted to kill him. Okay, so verse 2. The time came for the Jewish festival of tabernacles. So Jesus, Jesus' brothers approached him. Leave this place, they said, and go to Judea. Then your disciples will see the works you're doing. Nobody who wants to become well-known does these things in secret. You're doing these things. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Even his brothers, you see, didn't believe him now this this is a little bit of a weird passage in a sense because his brothers are saying hey look let's take this show on the road and things are popping you're doing miracles you're doing good things but you're in covington let's go to new orleans right you know it's kind of you understand what i'm saying if if you're trying to make it big in the music business you don't start out in downtown covington right if you, if maybe that's some wisdom for some of you musicians in here. No. Uh, if you want to make it in the music business, you go to a place like New Orleans. Well, actually, you know, probably Austin, Nashville, <laughs> L.A. Uh, you go to a place where, where you can get exposure, where you can make connections. And his brothers were saying, Jesus, this is great what you're doing. But come on, let's, let's take this where you can connect with a larger audience. But then it goes on to say that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. What is going on there? Why are they telling him to take it to a larger stage and then it says that they didn't believe him? Well, I believe they believed him kind of, right? Like a lot of people believe Jesus kind of. They, they kind of like the idea of the Jesus who does miracles, the Jesus who heals us. We like that, yeah, right? 
But a lot of people aren't a big fan of stepping into the story that Jesus is inviting them into. See, th- these brothers of Jesus, they're kind of like the folks that, uh, that got fed by, you know, the 5,000. If we look back at that miracle uh, uh, a couple chapters before, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they want to make him king instantly, and Jesus runs away. Why? I mean, after all, Jesus came to be king. That was his mission. Well, he, he ran away because he wasn't going to become the kind of king they wanted. He wasn't there to be the king of their agenda. He wasn't going to step into their ideas. This king requires that you step into his agenda, step into his story. The, Jesus' brothers, they believed him at a surface level, but they weren't really ready to step into him being king the way he wanted to be king. And so it says that they didn't believe them. See, they had no sense that Jesus' mission will involve a single, final, decisive action through which Israel and the world will be changed for good. You know, where this story is heading, it's heading towards a cross. Nobody sees that as a good option. His brothers, the multitudes, even some of his disciples, they're living in a very small narrative where Jesus just takes the earthly throne in Jerusalem, runs the Romans out, and, and, and everybody, everything's good. But the story that Jesus is, is living in, the narrative he's fulfilling, it's, it's one that, that's not going to just free Israel, but the whole universe from the clutch of sin. In verse 10, I mean verse 6, Jesus goes on to say, My time isn't here yet. But your time is always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I'm giving evidence against it, showing that its works are evil. I tell you what, go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. My time is not yet complete. And with these words, he stayed behind in Galilee. Now, there's a couple of things I want us to notice here. There's, there's three main festivals that happened on the Jewish calendar. They were commanded by God to, to celebrate festivals. That's pretty cool of God, huh? You're commanded to party three times a year for a week at a time. Um, but these three festivals were Passover, Pentecost, and the Festival of, of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, your, your Bible may say. Uh, and and the Festival of Booths was this this kind of thing where everyone would go to Jerusalem, and then they would erect these these little shelters, these kind of tents, these booths, and it would commemorate the time when, when God was faithful to them in the wilderness, where they were traveling from Egypt to, um, to the Promised Land. And this journey commemorated commemorated that, how God was faithful to them. But for many people in the first century, it was also regarded as a key symbol of the great national hope for the Messiah and for the liberation from Rome. The people living in the first century, when they celebrated this festival, it, it meant that, hey, God God heard us at one time. Maybe He'll hear us again. Maybe the Messiah will, will, will come forth and, and, and liberate us. Because, again, just keep in mind, these people are very oppressed. They're under a foreign government that's dominating them. The glory of Israel is, is kind of being squashed. But the ministry of Jesus has a Passover shape to it, not a tabernacle shape. Jesus says, my, my time hasn't come yet. 
Jesus' time isn't the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. It's the festival of Passover. If we look at the whole of, of, of the Gospel of John, it's, it's about Passover. It's about Jesus being the fulfillment of that. We, we see at the opening chapter of, of, of John that, that John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if we follow all the way down to the day that Jesus is crucified, he's crucified on the day of Passover when the lambs were slaughtered. The whole thing that God was saying with all these festivals in the Old Testament, it's leading to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the substance to which all of these festivals point to. His time has not come yet. It's not coming in the fall with this festival. It's coming a few months down the road. Now, Jesus, in this passage, he says, the world hates me because he reveals their deeds. You know, if we go back to the first chapter of John, and another theme that we see here, it says the light shines in the darkness. Jesus came to his own. The word came to his own, but his, word, his own didn't receive him. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not overcome it. Jesus is being hated by the world. Now, the word world here, it means cosmos. It means kind of like the created universe. But... Really, what Jesus is getting at here is, is he, he's kind of applying it to a, a specific geographical area, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place, you know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Now, to those people that would have heard Jesus say that, that would have been very reminiscent of Jerusalem itself and Jerusalem's calling. If you've ever seen Jerusalem, it's actually a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And, and in a sense, the Jewish people, they were, they were carved out by God, not just because they were intrinsically special and because God just wanted them to make their own special club. If you look at Deuteronomy, it says, I've called you to be a nation of priests and kings. That, that part of the mission of Israel was that they would shepherd all these other nations into relationship with God. That other people would see the light. But the problem was that, that Israel had come, uh, Jerusalem had come to embody the attitudes of the world. The Jerusalem, the very place that should be a light of the world, a city on a hill, had become known for being the most resistant to God's plans. The world is the deep-seated attitude that turns away from the loving Creator and tries to organize its life independently of God. The problem which gives this gospel its shape and its flavor is that Jerusalem and its leaders and opinions formers, both unofficial and official, had come to embody the attitudes of the world. They're having fun back there today. <laughs> so Jesus has a Passover-shaped vocation. It's not, just, it's not just His ultimate calling to die as the Passover lamb. It's His whole ministry. Passover is the day... When the lambs will be sacrificed. It's in the spring, not in autumn. And Passover speaks of, of Jesus' self-sacrifice, His self-giving, so that we can enter into a new exodus. Not an exodus just from earthly rule of people, but an exodus from sin. That we can head to a new promised land that's, that's, not, that's not governed by sin and death and disease, but a place where there's freedom, love, truth. Passover-shaped vocation speaks of self-sacrifice. And it's not just in the, the example of Jesus. It's also in the teachings of Jesus. I think one of the best examples of this is Luke 9, 23 through 25. 
Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses life for me will save it. What is it good for you to gain the whole world yet to forfeit your very self? You know, I was watching a documentary yesterday on uh, Netflix of, about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody familiar with him? Yeah, you can look this guy up. He was uh, a, a German theologian, and he, he lived from 1906 to 1945. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer stepped in, started, you know, got his first degree in theology by the age 21 in, in Berlin, Germany. And after that, he moved to the United States. Now, this was a time in, in the history of the world, particularly for Germany. It was a very dark time. Germany was, was still recovering from World War I. Things were desperate. The economy was bad. The unemployment was off the charts. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer moves to the United States to continue his education in theology. He goes to Union Seminary up in New York City. And while he's at Union Seminary, he, he went to a black church in Harlem. And he'd never encountered anything like that in his life. If, if you were going to a Lutheran church in Germany at the time, I, it's probably not a whole lot different today. Very solemn, very traditional, very quiet, very reserved. You don't get out of the box much. He goes to this uh, black church in, in Harlem. And these people, he was just blown away. He said, when they talk about Jesus, they talk about Jesus. They, 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 when they talk about the gospel, it's different from the way we talk about it. They get excited. They, they, like they're passionate about it. And, and he, what was interesting as an outsider coming into America was he saw how these people were, were a persecuted group in America at that time. This is, keep in mind, this is late 1920s, early 1930s. Uh, the, 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 uh, much of the movement that would take shape many years later wasn't really having any steam. Black people were very persecuted. And, and Bonhoeffer noted that he said, white people like listening to black gospel music. They like listening to the choirs, but when it comes to giving them equal rights, that's not even on the table. That's not even on the radar. And so he noticed something. He said, these people, that, that, that they're, they're a persecuted minority, yet they're worshiping God as if they're free. <laughs> There's something that they're doing that, that's different. And, and that, that experience profoundly changed him. Actually, in this church, he ended up teaching Sunday school, which would have been pretty cool to get taught, taught Sunday school by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a black church. I'm... I, that, <laughs> Those two things, that goes together like peanut butter and chocolate in my world. You know, it's like. <laughs> he goes back to, to Germany, and by the time he heads back, the, the Nazis were, were beginning to rise to prominence, and they were beginning to persecute the Jewish people. And, and, and first off, it's, it was you know, with propaganda, then it was boycotting their stores. They, they, were making a lot of, uh, they were making life miserable for Jewish people in Germany. And, and Bonhoeffer, fresh from this experience in America, he said, you know what's happening to the Jews, it's not that different from what's happening to the black, black people in America. And, and Bonhoeffer, unlike most of the people in the German church at that time, he began to stand up and oppose the Nazis. A lot of you may not know this, but the Nazis, when they were rising to power, even Adolf Hitler... He talked a lot about God in his speeches, which is, ought to give us a little pause, a little concern. <laughs> he talked about God a lot. He was saying the things that, that Christians like to hear. And most of the Christians in Germany at the time sided with Hitler. 
They bought into it. Whether, whether they bought into it or just tolerated it, most of the Christians didn't resist it. And Bonhoeffer, he said, no, no, we're not going to do this. In fact, two days after Hitler finally comes to power in his, most, in his, his top position as dictator, Bonhoeffer's on the radio just, you know, blasting him until they cut off the power of the radio station. <laughs> For the next few years, Bonhoeffer began organizing a group called the Confessing Church. And, and this was a few thousand pastors that, that were not going to bow to the Nazis. They were the confessing church, the ones who believed in Jesus. Jesus is our king. Hitler ain't. And they began establishing secret seminaries. Uh, the Lutheran church, still in Germany, you, you have to tithe to the Lutheran church. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or a, a, you know, some other version. It's like a, the IRS here. You, you actually, you're forced to tithe. <laughs> Whether you believe in it or not, if you're an atheist, it doesn't matter. They take it out of your check. Um, so when Bonhoeffer began to organize these things that weren't officially sanctioned church activities by the governor, he, he had to rely on the goodwill of other people. But they did. They found it. They, they found God's provision. And so they, they lived as a persecuted minority group that was standing up for the Jewish people, standing up for Christians, resisting the Nazis with nonviolence. And as the decade of the 30s progressed, things got really bad for Bonhoeffer and, and folks that weren't going to bow to the Nazis because the Nazis were taking over everything. Finally, in 1939, Bonhoeffer moved to the U.S., to get away from everything because he realized if I stay here I'm probably going to die it, it was getting to that point but he re- immediately regretted his decision this is what he writes he wrote I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after World War I if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make the choice from security. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like somebody who's not living in his story that's about him. He's stepping out the door. He's taking a risk. I'm not, you know, I'm a prominent theologian right now. Things are going good. I've left all of the the, the hardships of Germany where my life was threatened. I I could see Bonhoeffer wrestling with this. He could live a good life for all his days in America. He had positions lined up. He had people that were inviting him to speak. He was a respected theologian by this time. But he says, I can't make this choice from America. I've got to go back and be with my people or else I've forfeited my right to speak into this situation. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the Passover shape of Jesus' ministry. It's self-sacrifice. I'm going to, to, to risk myself that others can come to the knowledge of Jesus, that others can benefit. And so what did, what did Bonhoeffer do? He went right back to Germany. And over the next few years, they resisted the Germans for a while. And then finally, the Germans got him and they put him in prison. And he spent uh, the last two years of his life in prison until finally the day, the day came where they were going to hang him. And this is a, this is a, a quote from a, 
a doctor who witnessed the execution at the concentration camp. He says, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In, almost, in the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. You know, Bonhoeffer, he knew what true life was. And he had it up until the end, up until the last moments of his life. And other people could see that. There was no anxiety. There was no fear. There was no sense of, of anger or bitterness. He, there was no sense of becoming the victim. He was perfectly at home in God's rest, God's presence, up until the moment they hung him from the gallows. See, the truth is, everything in our world is, is pressing us to conform into the mold. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says in, in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The, the image that, that Paul has is kind of when you, like when you put something in a mold and, and you press it and, and apply pressure from the outside. That's the world we live in. I think a great example of this is from my own son Ezra. A few few months ago, we cut off the cable at our house because I just got tired of paying the cable company so much money. So we got Netflix now. And, and Ezra made the observation, which very, very interesting observation. He said a, a few weeks ago, he said, Dad, you know, when it was time for my birthday, I hardly knew what I wanted because we can't see commercials anymore on TV. <laughs> I hardly knew what I wanted because there was nobody telling me what I wanted. But isn't that true? We look to Hollywood. We look to commercials. We look to other people around us. We look to our family, our bosses. We look to people to tell us what we want. Oh, you want this. You want to look this way. You want to act this way. You want to get this kind of car and this kind of house. You want to uh, wear this kind of shirt. You want to talk this way. You want to hang out with this kind of people. If you're going somewhere, you need to try this cream and, and this, this uh, look and this haircut and read this book because everybody's reading this book and listen to this album. Everything is trying to squeeze us into the mold, isn't it? And most of the time, we're not even conscious of it. We think we really like these things, don't we? Because we're told so much. Oh, I really do like this. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, if we, if we live in a story that's just about me and my stuff and my things and my security, guess what? You can gain the whole world. You can have all the toys, all the stuff that you want, but you're going to be miserable. You're going to die in the process. But when we live a, a, a cross-shaped life, a Passover-shaped life, a life that looks like Jesus, it's, it, we, we find that, that in giving away, in serving, in taking the path of humility, we find in that place, we, we find what true life really is. It's not a life that's, that's tied to our stuff, our things, the opinions of other people. It's tied directly to God. God 
is asking us as his people, are, are we willing to step into the story he's telling? You know, I, I, I think most people in America, they're not interested in that kind of Jesus. We want a Jesus that, that we can get to work for our plans. And all it takes is just a trip to the local Christian bookstore to, 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 to find this out. You've got book after book telling you what Jesus can do for you. Jesus wants to, to, to be at your beck and call to give you everything you want. He doesn't. That's not the story Jesus is telling. We like to think that. Jesus is inviting us, though, to, to take our hands off, to give him everything we have, and follow him. And I tell you, I mean, even when we were talking yesterday with a bunch of guys, I, I'm telling you, there's nothing like that. When you step out of that front door, like Bilbo Baggins said, you never know where you're going to go. If you don't keep your feet, you don't know where God is going to take you on this adventure. But I tell you, once you get a taste of that adventure, you're wrecked. You're ruined. You can't go back to playing it safe kind of Christianity anymore. Are you going to live a story that you just try to add a little bit of Jesus to? Try to get Jesus to operate on your agenda? Are you willing to give up your own agenda and say, God, I'm going to follow you wherever this crazy thing leads? Wherever it leads. When you find that, you find life. That's good stuff. You know, today I want to close with a a reading from something that, that very much inspired Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And like the, the words from Luke 9, uh, it's, it really has a Passover shape to it. It has a, a cross shape to it. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he had read the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount many times as a theologian, but, but all of a sudden one day he broke with the prevailing mentality of that time. See, a lot of people, theologians at that time, they looked at the Beatitudes, which is, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. That's the Beatitudes. A lot of people in that day in Germany, they looked at the Beatitudes as, oh, that's nice inspirational words. That's nice. Jesus, he's crazy. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, I love that guy. That, that's, that's classic Jesus stuff. Inspirational, but totally disconnected from anybody's lives. You know, like, this is great. I'm glad. What a moral, great moral teacher he was. He couldn't really expect any of us to live that stuff. That's crazy talk, right? But Dietrich Bonhoeffer came along and he said, you know, I don't think Jesus was just trying to write inspirational stuff here. I think he was actually writing the, the Sermon on the Mount as a way to live. I think it's a blueprint for life. And actually Bonhoeffer, in all his trying to resist the Germans, he based his resistance efforts on the Sermon on the Mount. He was trying to live that out. And there were some times he failed. And he regretted failing. But I want to close today by reading Matthew 5, 3 through 16. I'm going to read it out of the message by uh, Eugene Peterson, so it's a bit of a paraphrase, but I just want you to close your eyes and let these words sink into your heart. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. <laughs> With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. You're blessed when you feel like you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you'll find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed 
when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort. They are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you on here on this hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be open to others. You'll prompt people to be open to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Thank you, Lord. God, your word is so good. Jesus, your words are so good. Let them be a cold splash of water on our souls. Let them wake us up to your reality, God. Lord, forgive us for trying to to squeeze you into our own agendas. Forgive us, Lord, for, for trying to make you into the image that we want. God, this morning we, we just come humbly before you and we, we say, God, take what little bit we have. Take our lives, God, our families, our, our children, our homes, our cars, all, all the stuff we have, God. Lord, we... Just ask for you to do with us as you please, Lord. Lord, we are changing your pocket. Spend us how you will, Lord. God, I pray you give us the courage this morning, each one of us, to step out of our comfort, our security to take a risk. Lord, that we could get caught up in the story that you're inviting us into. We thank you, Lord, that you are inviting us into a story. Lord, let us taste of your goodness. Let us taste of real life. Let us not be the ones who walk around leading lives of quiet desperation, of boredom, of just 
trying to hedge our bets, God, but let us be people who love lavishly, who give generously, Lord, who are friends, who are peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking for something to uh, meditate on this week, I, I would recommend Matthew 5, 3 through 16. Isn't it good just hearing those words? Doesn't it wake you up a bit? Let's soak our minds in that stuff a little bit more and a little bit less maybe in the Kardashians. <laughs> Thank you all. If, if anybody wants some prayer, we'll get our prayer team folks up here. And by the way, uh, if you'd like to come see the new building, you can just walk across the back parking lot. I'll, I'll head over there here in a minute, and, and you can walk in there and check it out. We don't have air conditioner at the moment, but uh, feel free to come over. God bless you all.